people who are saying they're doing no kill are really just dooming a bunch of wildlife to death that they don't have to look at and they don't have to take agency in doing it, but it is in fact their actions that result in it. You are listening to Urban Wildlife Podcast. Okay. Hello and welcome to the Urban Wildlife Podcast. This is other regular co-host, Billy Brown, and we also have... This is Travis Longcore with the Urban Wildlands Group in Los Angeles, California. So before we get to, to why we have Travis on the podcast and, and what we're gonna, the topic of the day, um, we want to remind you that you can get in touch with us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at urbwildlifecast. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. And of course, please like us on your podcast listening app of choice. Write a review that helps other people find the podcast. So... I'll give a quick reminder that, that longtime listeners might remember that we had Travis on back in April 14th of 2017 with our episode titled Flyover Critters and a Bald Eagle Deathmatch. And Travis was talking about the restoration work that um, his group has done with, and, and people in general have done with the El Segundo Blue Butterflies near Los Angeles International Airport. And those of you who listen to the podcast will probably know that Tony and I have become somewhat activated, you might say, uh, about the issue of, of outdoor cats and their impact on wildlife. A couple of years ago, I was reaching for an article, was looking for you know good art, handy articles to to talk about um, or to, to to reference when getting into discussions, let's say, about about how to handle cats outside. And I found myself looking at this article from Conservation Biology uh, 2009 called Critical Assessment of Claims Regarding Management of Feral Cats by Trap, Neuter, Return. And it was by Travis Longcore. I was like, wait, I know that guy. And then I was reading an article, and we'll get into this in more detail, um, but I was reading an article uh, about Los Angeles and and sort of feral cat uh, feeders and stuff in Los Angeles. And there again, the Urban Wildlands Group and Travis Longcore's name popped up um, in some advocacy trying to, what I would say, uh, force the city to employ sensible means of of control of of, of outdoor cats. So I was like, we should call Travis again. <laughs> we have a lot more to talk about. And so that's how we ended up here. But before we get to Travis, uh, Tony's going to give us a little introduction to just, if you haven't thought about this before, why is it bad for cats to be outside? Travis, please um, interject to correct me or to add to any of what I'm about to say. But essentially, um, in many parts of the world, cats... The house cat is not native, and the wildlife there did not evolve behaviors to evade them. So they are are extremely good at killing native wildlife in many parts of the world. Australia, North America, for instance, it's a big problem. Although, interestingly enough, in some parts of the world, the problem with the um, outdoor domestic cats is they're actually interbreeding with the wild type. Fair and, point. Yeah. 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 So even where like the wildlife Scotland. is yeah. adopt is adapted to these cats, like behaviorally, um, there's still a problem because um, the cats are uh, uh, actually, you know, swapping <laughs> out the genes of the wild type. So they're they're pretty much a problem everywhere. They kill estimates range, was it, in the like the hundreds of millions, if not to the billions of birds, and without a doubt into the tens of. Uh, billions of small mammals and, and reptiles in in North America, in North America, in other countries. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, they've been responsible for the extinction of entire species in the world. Yep. Human behavior seems to go hand in hand with these cats wherever they go. So it's not just yeah. the cats; it's also also human behavior associated with it. And one of the problems are, are feeding stations where 
Um, they encourage wildlife to interact with cats and with each other. Because if you think about it, how often are, are foxes, other than like ones that share a den together, actually going to like encounter each other? But the or foxes snuggle up with skunks. Yeah, and and well, not, so yeah. now they have these feeding uh, areas where they can go and um, eat the same food and exchange diseases with each other, with their own species, other wildlife, and cats. And uh, toxoplasmosis is a, a parasite found in cats that um, affects the brains of of many types of, of mammals, including humans, but also monk seals, sea otters, and it changes their behavior. Cetate, like whales, cetaceans? Yeah. Or any vertebrates, warm-blooded an- animals in general, yeah. So, um, and then I, I'd mentioned the rabies problem. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've got I like to look data. I like to look at data on it, but it seems to be being more prevalent. The state of Delaware very sadly recorded its first rabies death uh, since the '40s, I think. Um, and the woman who died was a, a outdoor cat feeder. And mm-hmm. they don't have, they don't know enough about the specific exposure, but that seems, and it could have been from a cat, could have been from a raccoon, who knows? Um, mm-hmm. But it, it sort of points to this as another element of the public health hazard. Um, so. One of the things that I think when you're learning, about, when, you, when you start thinking, oh, it's bad for lots of cats to be outside, um, especially the ones that are out there breeding on their own, it's sort of like an intuitive solution to say, hey, what if we, you know, if we don't feel like killing them, it seems so gruesome, why don't we uh, just neuter them? And then they can't have any more babies and the problem solved, right? And so this is something that we, that, that Tony and I get in endless discussions about. We thought we'd kick it over to Travis and, and talk a little bit about why won't it work just to like neuter and spay a bunch of them and then they won't have as many babies. So thank you for welcoming me to this ongoing conversation and, and this question of why isn't it just better that I um, have some, have sterilized cats than not sterilized cats uh, is, is, is a question that I've gotten before. And, and the answer is that trap neuter return when we're talking about it in a public policy context is not just about the sterilization if i could wave a wand and have you know 90 percent of the cats out there sterilized i i would but that's not what we're talking about we're talking about programs that actually uh are using the sterilization as a thinly veiled fig leaf to rationalize other things which is namely the feeding of cats because they kind of come hand in hand it's like people are out there feeding cats and, the, and it gets out of hand, and then they're like, oh, no, wait a minute, we're sterilizing. Um, but really, the thing that they're going for is sort of legalizing and giving special rights to people to feed cats that they don't own on property that isn't theirs. Um, and so the issue with, with sterilization and why it's not better uh, than, than not is – is thinking about it in terms of uh, immunity to a disease. It's like uh, immunization. And so if you think about the proportion of a population that needs to be immunized uh, in order for a disease not to spread, you know that it's pretty high. And they've done these studies for for sterilization and cats doing models uh, to figure out what proportion that needs to be. And it pretty much is between 75 and 90% of the cats would need to be sterilized in order for it to make any difference to the population whatsoever. Because remember, feeding goes along with it. So there's no limits on the population from uh, the food perspective. Um, And then people are putting out shelters for them. So that adds to the carrying capacity. And so if you miss any cats, the other ones are just going to survive at higher rates and reproduce at higher rates and replace any of the the reproductive output of the ones that you sterilized. And so what I'm leading up to here is, is 
is this is a public policy question. And you think at the level of a city, a big city, maybe like Los Angeles or a county, San Diego County, for example, uh, the level of neutering that you would need, spay neuter, uh, sterilization that you would need in order to have an effect on the population. Remember, 75 to 90 percent. This has been studied in places that have funded and long-term TNR programs. Um, and the highest rate that's ever been recorded at the scale of a city or a county is less than, you want to take a guess? Oh, man. I'm going to say 15%. What do you think, Tony? Mm, lower. Less than 4%. <laughs> so, so wait, <laughs> but, but I get in these discussions with uh, TNR <laughs> proponents, and they claim that there's that they get over 75% um, of the cat. So Okay. Now, this is a matter of scale. And remember what I said is that as a municipal policy, um, and because there's another set of arguments that go along with the individual locations, at one particular, so the smaller the number of cats you're working with, the greater the probability that you can get 75% or 90%. But that doesn't mean you're getting that percentage across the, the, the scope of an entire, um, an entire city. Because the resources aren't there to do that, nor are the volunteers there to do that. So you're really kind of bailing water here that's going to come in from somewhere else. Now, the other thing that doesn't happen when you do this is that assumed, if you want to take this approach, it assumes that any of the harms that come from leaving the number of cats out there uh, make no difference whatsoever. Right? So, so, that mean, so even a sterilized cat is a potential vector of disease, is a predator, um, you know, even a fed sterilized cat is a predator out there, out there on the landscape. And in front of this is also, you can't di you know, divorce all of this from sort of the social impacts as well. You know, there is a, you know, a part about this where you, you kind of have to acknowledge we're dealing with people living in sometimes tight quarters who need to get along with each other and they're causing a nuisance for their neighbors. And these are the kinds of calls that we get periodically, which is, you know, quote unquote, you know, someone would say to us, quote, I love animals, but these cats are driving me crazy. I don't care where they go, but they can't stay here. There's only so much cat crap you can find in your garden before you get fed up with it. Yes, exactly. Exactly that. Um, so, so, so this presumes then, and you have to sort of take a step back. And I wrote a, a, an essay some years back that kind of called this out, um, which is, the whole motivation behind trap new return is really not about reducing the number of cats. If you look at the original studies and promotion of this idea in the literature, it was described as something that you would do to maintain cats at a stable number where you want them. Okay. And it was only later that the people started saying, oh, well, well, well yeah, it's going to reduce the numbers. And now often the advocates won't even bother to say it's going to reduce the numbers. They're just going to say that it's going to we have to stop shelter killing. Um, and so and this was really clear. And this was clear in the paper that we wrote for conservation biology um, is that this movement was never about reducing the number of cats outside. It was about normalizing cats outside as an accepted part of the landscape in order to not kill them in shelters. And that's the thing you've got to understand about this is that we're all we're defining success in different ways yeah. to a to a wildlife advocate or a protector of you know native species. 
the success would be reducing the number of cats. To a feral cat advocate, that is not success. Success is reducing the number of cats that are killed in shelters. And there's no value then given to the number of animals that are killed uh, by those cats outside because that's not the metric. And, you know, and I, I, I ended up on, you know, interviewed on our public television station out there. And I, I basically said, look, you know, the idea that there's no kill is a lie. There's something's going to be killed. And the question is what it is. Um, because the people who are saying they're doing no kill are really just dooming a bunch of wildlife to death that they don't have to look at and they don't have to take agency in doing it, but it is in fact their actions that result in it. Um, and then, uh, or we have the option of unadoptable animals that come into a shelter are euthanized or killed depending on whether you think that's the proper use of the word euthanasia. I do. <laughs> oh, but then there's also the issue of what are they feeding these cats at stations or, you know, I mean, I have a cat, right? Like I, yeah, I take yeah. a cat in, I love, it's my, I mean, literally it's next to my wife. It's like the thing I love most in the world is this cat. And yeah. I love Billy yeah. and my friends and family. Thanks, but, Tony. Yeah. But I, you know, people could say, oh, you rescued this cat. I'm like, well, I chose a really affectionate, cute thing to prolong its life at the expense of whatever they grind up to feed it. Right, so there's yeah. also the lives of the of the domestic animals for cats yeah. keep the cats alive too, and I don't think that's talked about enough. Yeah, and this is the great irony of the 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 vegan feral cat fundraiser, um, and which is I appreciate that there's lots of important things about you know about eating lower on the food chain and eating more plants, uh, but if you're a feral cat advocate and you're promoting the sort of feeding of cats out there on the landscape, and this is it is done to a level that is pathological, and I'm sure you've seen this and are aware of it. You know, people who are spending their last dime buying cat food, it has an enormous toll on, on you know, either factory farming, uh, in the case of, say, a chicken-based diet, or on our oceans, in the case of a fish-based diet. And Greg Oaken at UCLA Geography did some work on this to quantify uh, some of these impacts, and it is a one of the great contradictions. Now, I, I have to fully admit that we all live these contradictions. You can't be pure and live in modern industrialized society. Um, but, but it is rather glaring. I don't know if we're talking about the same study, but I, we had, and I don't have it in front of me, but it was one that looked at it, tried to quantify pet food consumption in general and found it was something like a third of meat production in the United States was, is attributable to what pets consume. Yeah, I was going to say that could have been it. I think it was in plus one or plus biology, something like that. Yeah. And I heard a figure that in the United States... We feed our pets the equivalent of what the population of France eats for meat. Yeah, I think it's the same. Basically, it's yeah. the same piece. We've gotten a good primer on why um, trap due to release is probably not the solution. But I think the other part of, of, of what got me excited to talk to Travis again um, was this article I had read uh, about Los Angeles's um, it, it was sort of a, I think, I'm not sure it was an LA Times or an LA, some other LA magazine profiling people who are out there, you might call, I might call also pathological about sort of spending all their time and all their money out there feeding cats. Uh, in there was a mention about the Urban Wildlands Group. I think the group itself, Travis, correct me if it's you specifically on your own or the group, um, but suing the county or suing the city over, over not having done the proper environmental impact studies um, to roll out a citywide policy about that. A little walk down memory lane here. Um, we had heard um, in 2005 
uh, thereabouts that the city wanted to pursue this policy of trap new return for cats. And at the time, there was a, a, a uh, member of the Board of Animal Services Commissioners who was willing to listen. So we met with him and said, hey, look, you know, this isn't a great idea because of all these things that were even knowable at that point, remember 2005. Um, and he listened. He said, oh, but we thought this was the gold standard for how you're supposed to do it. And we said, no, 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 you still have all these issues that go along with it. And you really, you really shouldn't do this. And we submitted some letters. And then the mayor turned over and the next uh, set of appointees to the commission weren't really interested in listening. And so they just adopted um, the, the, uh, the plan. And the plan was to make trap new to return the policy of the city and to do a bunch of things that would promote trap new to return and pay for trap new to return with, um, with city funds. Um, and we complained, uh, and then we submitted after that, we said, Hey, look, you've adopted this policy, but in order to implement a policy, uh, because this policy could affect the environment, you actually have to comply with state environmental law. It's called the California Environmental Quality Act. And, um, and we think that you ought to do this uh, because we can make an argument and submitted a bunch of information that says this implementing this, this, this uh, policy is going to have a significant adverse impact on the environment because animals that currently come into shelters and, and don't go back out into open spaces and parks and whatnot are under this policy going to be returned back out to open spaces and parks and backyards and whatnot. And uh, here's all the information that says this will have a significant impact on the environment. Uh, and, you know, we had a lawyer, you know, write this uh, letter as well. And they, and, and they said, um, okay, sure, we'll review it. Um, so we won't, we won't implement this until we review it. And so we sit around and so what are we, 2007, 2008, there's a new director of uh, animal services and he's busy basically implementing the policy. And every time we ask about the environmental review, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're working on it. We're working on it. Um, until it finally got to a point where we had enough evidence, uh, including somebody who had tried to get a trap to trap feral cats, stray cats, out of her uh, property as she was doing some construction because she had to get them out before she could finish her construction project. It was they were down in the uh, underneath the floorboards or something and went in and tried to get a permit. And they said, oh, no, 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 you can't because of no kill. And you can only get a permit to uh, trap cats now if you uh, are going to, you know, TNR them. And so we had an we had an affidavit. Uh, there and some other, you know, information. And we said one last time, we said, hey, look, guys, we know you're doing this. We know you're implementing this. And key to implementing this, and let's be clear about what I'm talking about, it's not just that you're spending money on TNR, city money. It's that you're taking away people's right to trap a cat with a permit and bring it into the shelter and not have it dumped right back on your backyard. Okay, so it, it actually removes that that right of land managers and property owners and residents uh, to sort of manage their local situation. Um, and they said, oh, no, 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 we're doing the review. And we said, OK, fine. So we filed a lawsuit and the lawsuit had a very unique set of facts, which is they had already admitted that they needed to do the review under the law and that they were going to do the review under the law. And so the only thing that we had to prove was that they were implementing this project sort of illicitly and, uh, you know, illegally without doing the review that they'd said they were going to do. 
And try as they might, they were unable to <laughs> overcome the burden of evidence. Was we had them dead to rights in the in the affidavits. We we could show uh, that they were actually implementing the project. So what happened then is that the court put in an injunction that said, "Hey, city, you can't do any of these things that you say are part of your TNR program unless and until." You do the environmental review um, to a you know a satisfactory level because there's evidence that this would have a significant adverse impact on the environment, and this is what's been in place. And you know, at the last minute, some feral cat groups tried to intervene. They appealed it all the way to the state supreme court. Uh, they were shot down, um, but cost us you know a year and a bunch of money to fight them off. Uh, but the injunction stayed in place, and and it stays in place to this day. They, they, and they kind of had these series of attempts to try to do this review um, that were met by responses from the public health community, L.A. County Public Health, from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, from California Fish and Game. And, of course, our at this point, we've written hundreds of pages of, of exposition about the, the, the difficulties with these very particular uh, policy proposals that they kept putting forward. And right now they still say that they're going to come out with an environmental impact report any day. Um, and that, But what they've got to do in there is show that either their project has no impacts on the environment or that they've mitigated those impacts. And we don't, we're highly skeptical that they're willing to go against the political forces that are pushing them toward TNR uh, and would have them actually put any checks and balances into their policies. They kind of just want to give it away so that people can trap and neuter cats and feed them wherever they want, on whoever's alley they want, and everywhere's backyard they want. And then when those animals go into the shelter, have them be returned back out to those spots without any level of responsibility for the people who have been, you know, feeding them. Um, and, and so we'll see. But I mean, if you want to get way into the weeds of of <laughs> of these these impacts and how this works, it's it's literally been uh, what it is nine years now of of writing, you know, ten to twenty to thirty page documents uh, every time the city tries to rationalize using faulty logic and uh, selective uh, citation the idea that it's a good idea to legalize feral cat feeding and take away people's right to trap cats and take them into the shelter and have them not be released back outside. Travis, I want to hear, there's something we should have asked you about before, but who's the we? I want to, like the Urban Wildlands Group, um, it sounds like something I wish we had in Philadelphia, um, but can you give us an introduction to what you guys do generally and how this fits into your mission and, and your other activities? Sure. Um, we is we is, is usually Catherine Rich and me. Um, we founded this in grad school. Catherine's uh, my wife now, uh, and we work together on these issues and have for a long time. We also work on butterflies and pick things that have sort of strategic opportunities to make a difference. Um, so we often will also work with consultants on various things. So we have a captive butterfly rearing program where we work with a community college and a professor there and have a bunch of kids raising endangered butterflies. Uh, we worked on the, um, 
communication towers and night lighting. If you if you know that issue at all, birds being killed yep. at communication towers. We uh, worked with the American Bird Conservancy to put together some comments very early on on that as consultants and then sort of took it into the nonprofit side and wrote a series of papers that laid out the mortality rates at communication towers, the number of species that were killed, which species were killed, where they were being killed, and published that in the scientific literature that was then able to be used to basically uh, leverage the um, uh, FA, uh, FCC into regulating communication towers differently. So, and this has been a, a project that we thought would be over long ago, but it was so needed that it's the one thing that we w will work on whether or not we have any grant support or donation support or whatnot, um, that, that we're going to see this particular thing in Los Angeles through because the example is there for how we can address this as a broader conservation community. Uh, which is on the facts and the merits, uh, yeah, and and that there's, you know, a need uh, to not look at this as an animal, uh, just an animal issue, but that this is a conservation issue from the start. Because back when we wrote that paper in 2009, we'd talk to, you know, people in the conservation biology world, and they'd be, oh, no one's ever going to listen to those people. They're crazy. No one ever just near to the cats and leave them outside. That's nuts. And we're like, no, no, no. You don't understand where this movement's coming from and how, what power it's going to have and how it's growing, you know, because we've been tracking it. And we've got people also who we talk to who are themselves kind of in the animal community but have recognized that this practice is also inhumane um, because it doesn't care about the welfare of the cats when they're outside. And, 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 and those folks who would agree with us that it's, it's more humane to, to kill an animal in a shelter that's instead of dumping it outside where it's going to get hit by a car um, or, you know, end up skibitic and diseased and, you know, with its, you know, face bitten in by a, a, a stray dog. Um, so, so it's, yeah, that's kind of where this has all come from. And it's been in the course of doing many other things, uh, this has been just a, an ongoing issue because I don't think that the city can give up on it because the mayor politically um, has cast uh, his lot with, with the animal rights crowd. And there's a particular council member who's been pushing it uh, as well. Uh, and, you know, but, but we took it to a venue where the, the political appeal had less currency, which is to a judge in a court. Um, so, so I have a question. So, so you mentioned a, f a minute ago about your attempts to to get other people in the conservation world to to pay more attention to this. It, this is something that that we scratch our heads about a little bit, also, um, where it seems like we've got studies about the the impact of cats overall. We've got perhaps the the specific feeding of outdoor cats. I'm not sure how to weigh it against the impact of people's pets, cats being let out also. Um, mm -hmm. But the, but in any case, certainly on certain local scales, you know, where we've got, let's say in Philadelphia, where we have lots of these, these cat feeding stations near what are actually pretty high value bird habitat, like along the Delaware mm -hmm. river or something like that, um, that you, you have clear conservation problems. Um, and we don't see 
uh, you know, the, the Audubon groups, the, the you know, other conservation groups weighing in on this. And I don't know if they've been intimidated or if they still don't view it as all that important compared to, I don't know, saving right. like rainforest in Brazil. Right. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think that we've gotten farther along on this uh, since that conservation biology paper. You know, there's been a bunch of work. The, the Fish and Wildlife uh, Smithsonian did the Lawson Mara uh, uh, and will papers that you mentioned for total estimates, um, and, and, and credit to American bird conservancy, which has had, uh, has, has been active on this issue and willing to, to, to take a stand. Um, I think that, you know, the challenge is, especially when it comes to local groups is that, you know, people are people and they love their pets and, yeah. th- and it's very hard to get people to draw the line between their pets and an animal that looks like their pet that's living outside and is not tame. Um, and so you do have local Audubon groups even that partner with uh, these uh, these groups. And, and I mean, for me, the, the problem with all of it is that there's n- there's not agreement over the purpose. Um, it, it, or frequently there's not agreement over the purpose. Uh, and, and there's this sort of, there's a doctrinaire sense on the, the animal... I wouldn't want to call them advocates, the feral, the feral cat uh, community that, that is, um, there's no room for negotiation, right? So I've been approached by, you know, people very highly placed in, in that world who have a long conversation about the science and the whatnot, but at the end of the day, they just say, they said, well, I can't, we can't kill any animals. We can't kill any cats, period. Not in shelters, not anywhere. I'm like, well, you can't suspend the, the the rules of biology. So if if your position is you're willing to work with us as long as you can't kill any animals, what you're saying is I'm willing to kill as much wildlife as possible, um, but as long as we don't kill this one specific species of animal. And um, it's a hard one for people to get over, though. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm not sure if that's a hopeful conclusion or not. Um, <laughs> Well, look, because here, you know, I think, though, that we don't hold the delusion that you can stop people from neutering cats outside. And in fact, that's not even our goal. If somebody wants to do that on their dead end or their neighborhood or whatnot, as a matter of fact, I don't mind that so much as long as they're not then feeding a whole bunch of cats. Um, The issue is the and the reason you have to keep laws that, you know, ban feeding, you know, have, you know, indoor cat only or, or not nighttime. And this is where you can start distinguishing between owned animals and, and, and stray animals. You can reduce the mortality of, of wildlife greatly by keeping the cats inside uh, at night. Um, so that's one place where you can make a difference. Um, if, but, but having there be some consequences uh, for having animals that you care about roaming free is the only thing that keeps this in check. Is once you take away the ability of people if, to, to have the cat go to the shelter and the possibility that if it isn't adopted, it's euthanized, is the only thing that sort of keeps this even mildly in check right now. Uh, and once you take that away, then, then it's a free-for-all. And so, I, like I said, if someone wants to individually with their own money neuter cats because they don't have the heart to take them to the shelter and put them down – uh, if they're and they they don't want to make them a pet, and if you go ahead and do that, every cat that you want to adopt and make a pet, that's wonderful. Um, but but it's that it's that sort of ability to have a check on that behavior 
that that is really central to all of this and the ability for people to have um uh you know sort of control over their surroundings whether it be schools that don't want there to be rabies vectors you know on the playground with the the, the school children not so much an issue in los angeles because we don't have so much rabies here but other places it certainly is having that maintained is the is the real is the real key key issue here okay. uh, and, and, and in fact, Beverly Hills, nobody talks about this and they don't, there is a TNR ordinance in Beverly Hills. Uh, and, and when they sort of first came up with this, it was because it was like one feeder and she was violating whatever ordinance was there and they were going to, going to, uh, sort of shut it down. And the, the sort of rent a mob of cat advocates got all up in arms and packed a city council meeting and, you know, and, and then there was this push, oh, well, we have to do TNR. And we said, well, we sent them a bunch of things. We said, this is a problem, that's a problem. And here are ways that you could mitigate that. Like if someone's going to be feeding feral cats in the alley, you need to get permission of the surrounding landowners. In case it gets to be a nuisance, then they can revoke permission and then you don't get to do it anymore. And that get, that puts a, a check on the sort of bad behavior. And so they actually did that. They, they put a TNR program through, but you had to have a particular feeding stand. You had to have revocable permission from all the property owners within some you know, uh, distance of the feeding station. And this was all designed so that you would balance the desires of people to go feed uh, unowned stray animals and the sort of rights of people uh, and wildlife. They banned it entirely in the hillside areas, and the coyotes would have taken care of them anyway there. And, and so the, the feral cat community, Alley Cat Allies, doesn't tout Beverly Hills as a great success because they actually listen to both sides and put forth an ordinance that, um, that balance these issues. Mm-hmm. And, and it might not surprise you, Beverly Hills doesn't really have a big problem uh, because you, you actually have to take responsibility if you want to go feed feral cats in Beverly Hills. You don't get to just go dump you don't get to just go dump food on a paper plate out the back of your your car, um, and and leave it there for the 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 you know the the, the dead birds to show up on the, the the neighbor's doorstep in the morning. If um, you can indulge us for a little bit more, this recent paper, um, long a long term lens, cumulative impacts of free roaming cat management strategy, and intensity on preventable. Cat Mortalities by John Boone et al. And he's from the Great Basin Bird Service area. Have you seen this? I have seen that. Uh, and it's making the rounds in the yes, uh, it is. cat feeding communities. And um, I don't know if you want to speak to that at all. Yeah. So my take on it is that um, the neutering levels that they assume in order to be – one, that the metric is the number of cat lives saved, not the, the anything else. And that tells you everything you that tells you everything you need to know about the paper. Uh, and incidentally to that, we would have far fewer cats killed every year if they had continued on the trend that they had before the year 2000, which was when the Hayden Act was passed in California, which basically made you have to have a holding period for obviously feral, obviously unadaptable cats and kittens. And because before that, the numbers coming into LA City were declining every year, year over year, and then they had to bring them in and hold them. And so then it started to uh, flatline. So, and this is if you ever have looked at, uh, you know, sort of invasive species eradication on islands, it's counterintuitive, but the way you kill the fewest uh, animals in the most humane way is you do it as fast as possible. We could be dealing with much lower levels if we just continued on that trend 
uh, and and uh, and not tried to save every animal. And because we've done that, we end up actually killing more animals over time. Interesting fact. But yes, that's the problem with the paper is that that's the only metric. And the other one is they assume an unreasonably high level of, of sterilization, 75% or something like that, uh, which, as I said before, yes, you can do it at a cul-de-sac, but no one has ever done that at the scale of, uh, that we implement policy, uh, which is at the scale of cities and counties. Uh, and so it's completely unrealistic uh, sort of set of assumptions to achieve a goal that, that thumbs its nose at the, every other stakeholder and every other issue that goes along with free roaming cats, which include vectoring disease, um, and, and, uh, in addition to wildlife mortality, uh, water quality, all that sort of thing. So yeah, familiar with it. Um, not surprised given the list of, of authors and, you know, it's disappointing when people who see themselves as bird advocates feel compelled, um, to, uh, indulge a metric, which is, doesn't recognize their own group of, of interest as being valuable. Exotic invasive. We'll wrap it up and yeah I, I just want to extend our extreme gratitude for uh another in, uh, fantastic interview with you um and i'll just say you know again how thankful we are we know that uh you know especially when you're um somewhat independent and you're 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 funded by grant funds and and contracts and things like that that uh that your time in a way is even more valuable uh, and so we appreciate this very much yeah, well, I, I do appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, that is the way it is. Um, so thanks so much, and, and thanks for getting the word out and, and, and sharing about the research. Billy, have you noticed that I, I left briefly? To let Shamu down? Yeah, well, the door's open. Uh, Shamu sometimes, he will cry because he wants, he doesn't, I think he doesn't know where I am or doesn't know where we are, and I kept hearing him crying up there, and I, um, I just, breaks my heart so I went up and normally what I do is I just clap real loud and he finds out figures out where I am and just comes down and uh this is what I what I always like to point out is that even if I'm kind of a cat neutral person and people might accuse us of hating cats or something like that Tony is an utter and complete cat person (laughs) Tony loves loves cats um and rescues them habitually uh, and so I always like to throw that in there when, when people are questioning or, or you know, the, the, the calling us a bunch of cat haters or something like that. Yeah, it's funny. I used to, I used to be so anti-cat. I mean, like, I'm a dog person, dog person. And then, like, you know, I... Well, you're Lola. <laughs> yeah, well, I, li- I was, you know, I lived in, uh, like, punk houses where there's some cats. And I was like, oh, this thing's cute and fairy. It wants to be my friend. Okay. And then, like, you know, I lived with a, a girlfriend for a few years, and she had two cats, and I... I, re- I got used to them, you know. In fact, she went away for a long time, and I was just like in the house, and I would literally like turn the AC up real high so the cats would get cold and want to come back <laughs> in bed with me. And so, like, and then when we broke up, I wa- I wanted a cat, and, got, and then so I got Lola. I really love Lola, and then um, that you know had Lola for a number of years, and then uh, Lola, I got uh, she was an old cat. So, um, and then when uh, Angie and I, my wife. You know, uh, girl, only girlfriend at the time when we moved in together. Her cat had died two weeks before. It was an old cat, kidney disease. My cat only lasted, it was 17 by that point, only lasted two years. Um, only lasted, I'm oh, sorry, two years. Only lasted two weeks and then died. And then we were without a cat for like a year. And then Shamu came along and just showed up at my work one day and I took it home. Yeah, and, and this is in the context of Tony 
doing his best to trap cats that were getting dumped at the environmental center um, and uh, and capture them so he could bring them into captivity. And, he, and, and so again, Tony being the cat person, I would have been like, well, I guess you're going to starve um, or called someone else to do it. And Tony himself took it on. Um, well, and, and th- to be fair, I mean, to be clear, like, it's the, the friendly ones that, like, will let me bring them in or, like... Well, yeah, but you're, 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 but it's work to try to find a home for these animals. Yeah, there's I mean, a, few, a few Facebook posts generally, but yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's something. It's, yeah. it's, it's going out of your way. I, I, I think you should take credit for it. Thanks. And this one was um, particularly affectionate and adorable. Um, yeah, we've talked a little bit about Shmoo in the past. Yeah. But, um, anyhow, uh, so we'll wind this up by saying... If you like our podcast, um, please like us on your listening app of choice uh, and write a review. Please recommend us to your friends. Hit us up on Twitter at UrbanWildlifeCast. Please email us at UrbanWildlifeCast at gmail.com and please find us on Facebook. Um, we love hearing for hearing ideas from you about what we should talk about in the podcast and we invite our listeners to also contribute content. If there's someone you want to interview, um, if you want to go out there in the field in whatever city you live in um, and record a little note about the kind of stuff that you like to observe, Do it. We love putting the kind of stuff on the podcast. Um, So thanks. Thank you. Cheers.